Welcome to the Free Mind Podcast with your host, Stephen Robles, Seth Reddy, and yours truly, Nerva. And I am super excited about our guest today because I met her many years ago and we kind of go way back. I can say that, right? In the music industry yeah, together. absolutely. And we've done a couple tours and have crossed paths maybe at some performances. Alisa Childers. And I tell you, I was scrolling on Facebook and I came across your page and saw all the stuff you were doing and I was blown away, taking the bull by the horns and tackling issues. And, and whenever I meet, meet or know a female apologist, I am just super inspired. So welcome mm. to the podcast. Well, thank you so much. It's so great to be with you guys. Yay. I'm inspired because a Chicago girl just said taking the bull by the horns. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard you say that. Yay. In our 12 and a half years of marriage, I'm, I'm really uh, I'm encouraged here. That's the inspiration coming in today. <laughs> yeah, thanks for coming on the show, Elisa. Um, so you now, so Nerva was telling me you guys actually were on the same tour at, yeah. at points mm-hmm. back in the day. Is that is that right? I believe we did was Winter Jam, jam? Yep. together, Nerva, that. if I remember right. And yes. uh, maybe a couple times we did. And maybe mm-hmm. there was this other tour, I think it was called Shout Fest. That okay. Okay. Go around. Did you guys do Shout Fest? I think I we did. Like that sounds familiar. We did yeah. so many, but yeah. so yeah. So we we Yay. do go way back, and we've wow. had some of the same experiences touring mm-hmm. in the Christian music industry. So yeah, there's a lot of of common ground there, and just in in experience. That's really cool, man. Well, yeah, I you know we don't meet a lot of people in the music industry who get into apologetics. So when we saw that, noticed yes. that, we I thought it was pretty cool, man. So definitely, yeah. I think today we we um, wanted to have you in because I know you've you've done the topic of progressive Christianity you've you've you read a lot in that you you talk on that a lot so we want to talk about that and I know you have an interesting story about how you came into contact with progressive Christianity so maybe you might just want to share a little bit about your background in that and and then maybe we could talk about that topic yeah well you know touring as you know Nerva and and you both know Mm -hmm. touring can be very difficult on your spiritual life and in you know there are people who do it right and there are people who don't do it right and i think that for much of the time that i was on tour i wasn't really connected with a local church uh, i kind of moved to nashville just for the purpose of joining zoe girl and starting to to record albums and tour and um you know, I, I didn't do some things right. I didn't connect with a local pastor. I didn't really, I would go to church here and there when I was in town, but honestly, we were gone on Sundays a lot of times. So I wasn't really uh, linked in with a community of Christians here in Nashville, which I, I look back on. And I think that's one of the things that probably made me vulnerable mm-hmm. to uh, the story I'm about to tell you. Uh, but Zoe Girl stopped touring in around 2007, I think is, is when it was. And so when, when we got off the road, I was, I was married. And shortly after, uh, we got off the road, I had my first baby, Dylan, my daughter, who's now 10. And it was when she was a baby and, and a a toddler, my husband and I were realizing like, we had been going to a church, but like, we really need to get connected into a church. We need to find a community of people to, you know, quote unquote, do life with and really uh, plug in for, for our own spiritual uh, health and for our kids as well. And so the church that we had been attending just 
um, just wasn't a place of, of deep connection for us. And so it was through a string of uh, kind of random uh, things that I was invited to come sing at a local church here in the Nashville area. And this is just your kind of typical non-denominational mm. uh regular old evangelical church, if there is such a thing anymore as regular old right. evangelical church. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't, um, a mainline, uh, denomination. It was just non-denominational evangelical. And when, uh, I went and sang, uh, at this church, I felt a deep connection with the people there and with the church in general. And I, I remember the pastor preaching a sermon on suffering, and it was unlike anything I had ever heard. I, I can even remember the stories he told and the examples he used, and it was just so impactful for me. And my husband felt the same way. And so we actually started attending there, and I started to help with the worship team there and singing. And about eight months in, the pastor invited me to be a part of a like an inner circle type study group and it was it was sort of presented as an ordination class if you go through this class it's it was supposed to be a four year class and if you go through this class you'll come out on the other side you know knowing as much as you'd know if you went to seminary it was supposed to be a really in-depth thing like that and so uh, i was really excited because it was kind of that time in my life i wasn't really doing a ton of music anymore and i was isolated a bit as a new mom with a baby and this was something that was very exciting to me so i i got to the class with my bible and my notebook ready to to take notes and really dig in and learn and I, I learned very quickly that the class wasn't really like a what you would get at a seminary. It was some of that same information, but it was presented from only the skeptical side. And the reason for that is because the pastor revealed early on that he was actually an agnostic and he wasn't even sure he really believed all of this anymore. Wow. And so week after week after week, just all of the cherished beliefs I had about the cross and about Jesus and the resurrection, and really it mostly had to do with the Bible, were challenged uh, by a pastor that I had come to respect and trust. And so it really shook my faith and it sent me into a, a pretty dark time of doubt that I've talked about and written about on my own blog. And um, so, so through that, I discovered apologetics because what's interesting is that it was the apologists that were answering all of the claims that this pastor was bringing up against historic Christianity. And uh, so long story short, we ended up leaving that church after about four or five months of the class. And the church itself went on to identify a few years later as a progressive Christian community. So it began to make sense to me that what this progressive Christianity was, was what I was watching so many of my friends become uh, believers in. They, they had begun to believe this new kind of Christianity that is now uh, called progressive Christianity. Hmm. So when you say a church identifies itself, is it the title, a progressive church, or how did, how, how did that identity come about? Well, a few years after my husband and I left, um, they, they kind of made an, they, they made a shift. See the, the tough thing about this is that on my, in my Wednesday night class with this pastor, he would reveal all of his true beliefs to the class. But then on Sunday mornings, he was still preaching relatively orthodox sermons. Interesting. That, you know, okay. people, people, I've talked to people since then, and they did see red flags and things like this, mm -hmm. but for the most part, he was just 
preaching what you would believe. And so there, there was a shift a few years later and they redid the belief statement. They uh, became uh, LGBTQ affirming in relationships and ministry and all that. And then identify, they kept their name, but then like there was a, a tagline, a progressive Christian community. I see. I see. Wow. So from your experience, was it the pastor leading the interest group? Was it a struggle for him? Do you feel like he had arrived at his um, progressive stance and was just wanted to slowly convert the church? Or is that a fair question? That is a great question. And um, it's always hard to know exactly what some someone's motives are. I do think he was still confused about some things. I don't think he had fully landed. Okay. But there definitely was an element of him trying to bring other people along with him because he would even say in class, um, you know, he taught a Bible study on Thursdays or maybe it was Wednesday after our class. I can't remember, but he would come back and tell us like, you won't believe what I got away with, what I, what I said to them. And nobody said anything like nobody challenged it. And, and he even talked in class one time about, you know, do I reveal my beliefs to the church or do I just wow. slowly kind of bring them along? And, and so it was, it was definitely something he was thinking about. I see. Wow. Amazing. That's an interesting story. Well, do you mind sharing with us then what what is progressive Christianity? How does it relate to historic Christianity? Yeah, and that is the hardest question to answer because there are a lot of different beliefs that can fall under the umbrella of progressive Christianity. So what I've tried to do in my work is, is to define it as they define it. Sometimes people have a misunderstanding that the term progressive Christian is derogatory or some kind of a uh, you know, like a, uh, just a bad name, but it's actually not. It's, it's how they, they identify themselves and you can go on progressivechristianity.com and there's like eight beliefs. I have found that not all progressive Christians are quite that far left. It's a bit of a spectrum. And so what I think it comes down to for me, there's a sociologist named George Yancey who identifies, uh, he does a lot of study on progressive Christianity and he defines it as Christians who don't believe the Bible is the word of God. And I think that's a good start. It's not a complete definition because really it does have to do with the Bible. You won't find a lot of progressive Christians who have a historic understanding of how to read the Bible. And that doesn't mean Christians have always agreed on everything, but generally Christians throughout history have believed that the Bible is God's word. And so that is one thing that is greatly challenged in the progressive church. And um, But I, I actually wrote a blog post on this because it is hard to define. So it, there's more like signs you can look for. And so one of the signs is that, you know, it has to do with the Bible. There's a bit of a lowered view of the Bible, uh, although they would say they actually have a higher view because um, they, they take it very seriously, but they, but, but they won't see like when the prophets speak in the old Testament, they don't see them as actually speaking for God. Mm -hmm. They see the prophets as people who were writing their best understanding of God at that time. And so obviously that has implications for biblical authority and things like that. Um, the other point I, I wrote in the blog post is that it's a very feelings based, uh, and relativistic type of view. So if something works for you, we're not going to judge what, what you believe if it works for you. And, and often it's very pluralistic. And, and again, not all progressive Christians believe all of this, but this is the general tone you'll find in the progressive church is that 
you know, they're not going to claim Jesus is the only way, or if they do, they would extend that to include people of all different beliefs and religions. Um, the third would be that essential doctrines are open for reinterpretation. There's a progressive Christian blogger who actually wrote a blog post on the definition of progressive Christianity. His name's John Pavlovitz. And he wrote that, you know, progressive uh, Christians are, uh, open to challenging tradition, dogma, and doctrine. It's all fair game. And then he says, because it all passes through the hands of flawed humanity. And in the progressive church, when they say that it passes through the hands of flawed humanity, they're like, they're not talking about just you and me or C.S. Lewis or Augustine or somebody who was giving their best take on, on things. They're, they're talking about the biblical writers themselves as well. That they, you know, that was flawed humanity. So we have to go back and reexamine all of it, even the resurrection, you know, atonement and things like that. And, and there's a, often a denial of the whole idea that Jesus died on the cross for our sins in a substitutionary kind of way. They see that as, as cosmic child abuse. And um, the fourth one is that you, historic terms are redefined. They might say, yes, I believe the Bible is divinely inspired, but they all mean something very different than Christians have historically understood inspiration to mean. And, and then the fifth one is that the heart of the gospel shifts from sin and redemption to social justice. And this one gets me in trouble because I'm not saying, people kind of put words in my mouth, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't pursue justice in a biblical way. We should. Christians are commanded to, I mean, all throughout the Bible to take care of the poor and the fatherless and, and the oppressed and all of these things. But and for the progressive Christians, when you take the sin and redemption idea out of the equation of the gospel, then the gospel really becomes a works-based mm. type thing, bringing justice to the earth. And, and again, that's a good thing, but it's that's not really the heart of the gospel, the heart of the gospel is I'm a sinner saved by grace. And so um, it, it can, the emphasis on those things can shift. So that's just sort of kind of an, an umbrella, but I would say the main, the main tenet of progressive Christianity is that Christianity itself is progressing. And so, you know, what, what Paul and Peter and John understood we've come much further in history. That was just Christianity in its infancy. And we have come to learn more and better. And as Brian McLaren puts it, a higher and wiser view of God. A quick question, and, and maybe we can get into him in particular later. But in Rob Bell's latest book, he talks about that, that Jesus Christ's death uh, was not necessary. And what you just touched on a second ago, the reinterpretation of that uh, sacrifice and atonement. So what is the general feeling from a progressive, progressive Christian standpoint? Was Jesus Christ God, and did he die and, and rise again? Right. And that's a really interesting question because you will probably get different answers from different progressive Christians. So the church that I was at when I was there in class, now this was again, you know, nine years ago about the pastor still believed in a literal resurrection. He still believed that Jesus was bodily raised from the dead. Now, just a couple years ago, I went online just to see what they're talking about nowadays. And, and so I listened to one of his sermons. And in this sermon, uh, for all intents and purposes, he did deny the deity of Jesus and framed it more like, you know, Jesus, people like Jesus and Buddha and Martin Luther King Jr., these are people mm. we tend to venerate. But really what they're showing us 
is, uh, you know, they had some sort of really elevated status of evolution. And, you know, it, it's like about, it's, wow. it, there's new age ideas in there too, kind of like Christ consciousness, like we mm. all can attain Christ consciousness. So now, now certainly I don't think, uh, for example, people like Rachel Held Evans, I, I would I don't know for sure because she doesn't really get very specific, but from, from what I can tell from her, I think she still affirms the incarnation and the deity of Jesus, although her view of the Bible is really more in line with what I was describing before. Uh, so you're going to get different answers on those things, but generally, like, like Rob Bell, for example, in, uh, I can't remember which book of his it was, uh, but he, but he was basically saying that this whole idea of blood atonement, that Jesus had to shed his blood for our sins was something that the early Christians just borrowed from the pagan culture. Right. You know, there were, there were all kinds of religions and cults that would do that, that would sacrifice animals because the gods were angry. And so Rob Bell's message is the gods are not angry. God is not angry at you. And so, you know, that, so, so a lot of times in the progressive church, the death of Jesus really becomes something God submitted to because of our bloodlust, not because the payment for our sin needed to be paid by him, but because, you know, we wanted our pound of flesh. And so out of love, he gave it to us. But, um, but yeah, there's, there's really a denial of, of that core, really what makes the gospel, the gospel. Yeah. And that Rob Bell book is actually called, what is the Bible? How an ancient library of poems, letters, and stories can transform the way you think and feel about everything. That was his latest Mm -hmm. book where he discussed the atonement was basically a pagan idea. Yeah, and he he sums it up. I actually wrote a, a review of um, that book on my blog. If anyone wants to look it up, um, but but yeah, he sums up the the atonement theory as like God is less grumpy because of Jesus, and like he he did that in one of his lectures and kind of uh, dives into that more in that book. But but yeah, that's that's and that's not just him. That's that's coming from a lot of progressive voices. You know, I remember when we were on tour many years ago with Toby and um, Rob Bell came and did a devotion with us. And, you know, he went through some of the parables and um, gave his interpretation of. And I remember after he left, we a, a few of us were scratching our heads like, now, have you ever heard the scriptures interpreted like that? It was mm. as if he gave a third way of understanding it. And I had never um, understood it that way before. But I guess that's the like one of the. Um, Tenants, you're saying that just a, a straying away from the historical understanding of the scriptures, right? And yeah. that, and that's not to oversimplify things. Sure. You know, Christ, Christians have always disagreed on different interpretations here and there, and there have even been times in history when uh, an allegorical interpretation mm, was true. was dominant. Of course, you know, with the allegorical interpretation, generally speaking, in antiquity, they weren't saying it didn't literally happen as well, which is what a lot of progressives are saying when they allegorize some of these uh, Old Testament stories. They're also saying that they didn't happen. It was just myth, mm-hmm. which isn't really the view of those allegorical interpreters, uh, the ancient ones. But uh, yeah, it, I think it's just, it's the idea of biblical authority that the Bible has authority over us mm-hmm. is not is not something that many to most progressives would okay would would say they would say it does not have authority it's a great book it's an excellent work of literature you can find god's word in it but uh but it as a whole is not the word of god in fact the most recent book that i read uh from a progressive is from nadia boltz weber it's her book on sexuality 
And she wrote that, you know, the, the Bible isn't clear about anything. She, she's, she doesn't think it agrees with itself. You know, the poetry is going to say one thing. History is going to say another thing. The prose is going to say something else. And, and, you know, it doesn't really have a cohesive message. And that latest book from her is called Shameless, which is interesting because I know, again, coming out of an evangelical upbringing, shame and guilt was a lot of times the, the fundamentalist approach and what a lot of current progressive Christians seem to be railing against, that yes. legalism, guilt, and shame. Yeah. And that's a good thing because I think that's what made it attractive to me in the beginning is, you know, I was seeing some things in evangelical culture that just seemed like baloney to me, you know, just this hyper legalism. And my mom talks about, um, not being allowed to wear shorts when she was a little girl. And, um, you know, I've heard from, from other people in that generation, they weren't allowed to wear wedding rings even, and just the legalism or cut their hair. And so there was a lot of legalism and, and, you know, the evangelical church hasn't gotten the practice of our beliefs right always. There have been abuses. I mean, there's tons of abuses coming to the light now. And so in a way, them coming with these complaints is actually a good thing. I I agreed with some of the complaints, but I think the problem is, is the willingness to throw the proverbial baby out with the bathwater and throw all of the the core of the gospel out Instead of bring reform and and get back to a biblical way of living, um, the Bible goes out with the bathwater. Talking about your experience, I know you talk sometimes about the dark night of the soul you experienced during your time at the church there. Um, You know, I had a not not similar in every way experience, but when I was about 15, I started really wrestling with with intense doubt. And we talked about this on other podcasts and it didn't come in the form of someone questioning my beliefs or being in the environment of that. But it was just my own thoughts. And I kind of went through this, uh, I don't know, cave of doubt (laughs) and discovered apologetics through that and Christian scholars. And, you know, it was a long, hard process, but it really strengthened me in many ways. When I look back on it, I see it as God's providence and really um, prepare me um, for what later on really took my friends down and out of the faith eventually. Mm. But um, I noticed as some of my friends um, began to kind of flirt with progressive Christianity, I didn't have that term for it at the time. Um, I think back then it was probably known as emergent Christianity with a capital E, maybe. Yes. And we can talk about that overlap um, later. But I noticed many of them didn't have any... um, awareness of like good orthodox christian scholarship they mm-hmm. weren't aware of the argument so and, and combined with that was often an offense and in this history of you know struggle with the church all the kind of stuff you just talked about that actually wasn't good at times and it was sort of like this recipe um for for walking into progressive christianity that i saw of that combination of that that kind of offense and lack of knowledge of of good christian scholars yeah, um, and it, and it was really interesting to see that. I I don't know. And again, it's hard to get into motivations and the psychology of why people. But I did see why it was so um, tempting for many people to kind of just, yeah, man, this this makes sense. This is a way for me to hold on to my Christianity, but get rid of this emotional baggage. And and it seems like these people are actually thinking deeply about these subjects. And whenever I have questions in my church or or doubts, it's like people. 
you know, they say a pox upon you. They don't want to hear your questions. So this seems like a safer space. Have you mm. found that to be a common uh, thread with people that have walked oh, into yes. that? Uh, absolutely. And I think that that's one of the things as an apologist that I'm really trying to help the church to see is that we have to provide a safe place for Christians to process their doubts without being told, hey, we don't ask those questions here, yeah. or, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't ask that and, and reacting with such fear. And honestly, I, I've learned too. In fact, I, I, I want to write about this at some point about what happens when you actually embrace a more intellectual faith, it actually makes you less fearful because you've already examined all of these arguments for yourself so that when someone comes with a question uh, that that is, you know, a tough question, you're not going to react out of fear or even anger because you've thought this through and you know the, the different positions and, and you can just give a really uh, stable, solid, answer and a safe place for them to to process what they're feeling. You know, one great example of this was my dad. When I was going through this class, you know, I'd come home with uh, you know, all of these crazy things and I'd call my dad or I'd I'd see my dad and I'd say, you know, the pastor said this and then he said this and this and this. And it was like to see that my dad wasn't rattled one bit by any of it. I mean, nothing I said to him a shocked him or you know made him react fearfully he would just say well you know why does that bother you so much let's talk about what is it that's that's underneath that particular statement that that is causing this reaction in you and then and then we'd look at some things and research a little bit and and that was that made me feel safe to be able to bring this stuff up and not just be told hey you shouldn't you shouldn't feel this way or you shouldn't ask those kinds of questions. No, that's great. And I think, you know, that's exactly, it was sort of like a flu shot for me. Mm. Um, and when I got into that environment, I didn't catch it because I was, I could clearly see, you know, there, like, like you're saying, there are some tough issues we have to wrestle with and there are some things there's no easy answers to, but mm -hmm. you did. But I think for the essentials, you see, man, they can be, um, there's a robust defense for the central claims of Christianity that can yes. withstand the test of of incisive intellectual scrutiny. And mm -hmm. I think, um, you know, when I heard some of these things that my friends were struggling with, I was like, oh, that's not, you know, there are tough questions, but that's not one of them. <laughs> but they were, yeah. they were taking my friends down. And so I was, you know, I was able to help some of them kind of, kind of pull them back from, from full on. And even, even just this week, you know, mm. talking with some friends that were being tempted by the affirming the LGBTQ, um, you know, view of life and everything from a Christian perspective. And I was able to kind of give them some materials and point out yeah. the flaws in the, in the arguments they were um, coming across. But anyways, um, you know, I think you're so right. We have to, as Christians, we have to, to acknowledge where there are difficulties. We have to say where there is knowledge, where there's not knowledge, give people a safe space to wrestle through those ideas, or we're just going to create a recipe for disaster as people come into contact with these, these other people that are going to point out the weaknesses and then drag them to a, a really an unjustified conclusion based on those weaknesses. Yeah. Um, one of the things I noticed, I was listening to a couple of your podcasts on this topic and I had, I had, I was a uh, I'm attending Biola working on a master's in science and religion there and one of the classes I actually got the chance to study the controversy between uh fundamentalism and modernism in the early mm. 1900s and I and I did a paper on that 
And when I was listening to your description of progressive Christianity versus historic Christianity, immediately in my mind, I was like, huh, this is very similar in a lot of ways to the, 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 the debate between fundamentalism and modernism in, in the early 1900s. Yeah, it's sort of like we're replaying a lot of those same, same themes. And then it was funny because I think the next episode I listened to by you, you actually talked about that specifically. So maybe, maybe you could give our listeners a little bit of that history on that and then also talk about how how does the emergent church which we used to hear about about 10 years ago how does that relate to this current progressive christianity movement yes well and and i'm so glad you brought that up because if anybody reads about uh that that debate that that fundamentalist modernist debate that happened in the early 1900s it will give you you will just be reading today's news if you if you read that. Right. Um, in fact, a great book that I'm sure you've probably read in your studies on this is great uh, Jay Gresham Machen. Yep. Uh, you know, if you read his book, um, is it Christianity and Liberalism? Is that what it's called? You know, I don't remember the title, but I did. I yeah, I have a long quote called. from him. Yeah. But you, it's it's literally like reading a book that somebody would write about what's going on today. And and so yeah, there there was a reaction to some of the more hyper fundamentalist uh denominations and things going on during that time and you know a whole of course we had this was on the heels of all the German liberal scholarship and and uh liberalism was swallowing up the church basically. And so the the fundamentalists kind of isolated themselves off, leaving them, frankly, kind of unable to interact with some of the the skeptical claims against Christianity. We had the the Scopes Monkey Trial and all this stuff going on, and uh, and and we were kind of defenseless because uh, we had isolated ourselves off, and 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 we are seeing a lot of that happen again today. You know, when when the emergent church first came in, a lot of people, if they don't know the term progressive Christianity, they do know the term emergent. And emergent is only really different from progressive Christianity in one way, and that's that there were still some orthodox historic Christians in that movement that were trying to bring some of these uh, more social changes, changes in the sense that, you know, correcting abuses, um, you know, moving away from just a moralistic view of Christianity, moving away from the gospel being viewed as nothing more than a get out of hell free card, but in a, seeing the gospel in a more holistic way. Uh, so there were a lot of conversations going on. There was a lot of processing go along going on. But in the end, ultimately, the progressive at the the more liberal side of that kind of won the day, and mm. and so it, that's really what progressive Christianity is now. The people who had a more historic or orthodox view uh, just sort of faded out of that movement, and then it became sort of mostly a, a progressive type of movement. It's really informed by postmodernism, and and the interesting thing too is again that's not a derogatory term. It's not a pejorative. Uh, a lot of uh, progressive Christians believe openly that the postmodern view is correct, that it's that it corrected the the problems of modernism. And uh, so you, we see that in the Gungers, Lisa Gungers book, um, which I also reviewed on my on my blog. She talks about, rel, you know, basically embracing relativism. And and so this is this this is something that is very influential in the progressive church is is what they're viewing a postmodern correction uh, to to modernism. 
No, that's great. And I actually, I want to come back to that specifically in our next episode. Yeah, I think that he just looked up the book and it was it was Christian liberalism, right, Stephen? Man, it would be worthwhile. Another guy is George Marsden, who does a lot of writing on the fundamentalism and um, modernist controversy. What are some things you think we could, as, as people who are trying to hold on to a historic Christian worldview, what could we learn from that fundamentalist modernist controversy in history that, that might help us with this today? Anything stick out? The main thing I think we can learn from that controversy is to not just cordon ourselves off and isolate ourselves. We have to really engage these ideas. And it's not comfortable and it's not fun, but but we do. All of the questions that the progressive church is bringing, we need to engage with those questions. And, and not just say, you know, in fact, I'll just say this, one of the pushbacks I get from more conservative Christians is like, why are you even reviewing Rob Bell? Why are you even bothering with this stuff? They're just, they're, you know, they're heretics. Come on, we've moved on from this. And I think it's amazing to me in even some particular streams of evangelicalism, how unaware they are of how influential these ideas are in most churches. And uh, I, I have people send me via email examples of here's a, you know, a completely conservative church, but they brought this teacher in or they quoted this person or this book was recommended. And, and I think that for a lot of Christians, they don't realize how influential Rob Bell still is. They think he's like a bygone or something, but they don't realize like there are this is becoming the dominant voice of Christianity right now. And, um, you know, and again, we can, we don't need to be afraid of that. The Bible predicted that in the, in the end, there would be people who heap up teachers for themselves that tell them what their itching ears Mm -hmm. want to hear. I believe we're seeing that happen right before our eyes. So we have no need to fear, uh, but, but we do need to be aware and we need to engage these questions and not just, even with the Rob Bells of the world say, oh, we we're not going to even talk about him. We don't even need to bother with that because we do. We need to bother with it and we need to talk about it. And that's really good. Do you think, you know, the, the modernists had really, really heavy weight intellectual scholarship behind them in the early 1900s. Do you see that in progressive Christianity well as well? Or is it more of a popular level movement? Is it growing in steam of its uh, kind of intellectual architects? Yeah, that's an interesting question because from what I can tell, the dominant scholarship that there there are they definitely have their scholars. Uh they definitely do, but most of the scholarship that I, I see influencing the pro- progressive church is secular scholarship is is the the more atheist interpretations of scripture and things like that. But yeah, no, definitely they have their scholars. In fact, they have the advantage of all of that German scholarship, you know, that that came in and challenged the authority of the Bible and all of those things at their disposal. That and so, in one sense, the dominant view of scholars would more line up with what their anal, you know, the way they analyze the Bible. But that doesn't make it right. Right. And so, um, but the, I there aren't many that I've seen scholars that would say, yes, I'm a Christian and I believe these things. Like Pete Enns is an example of of a New Testament scholar who is heavily progressive. He's very, he influences Rachel Held Evans. In fact, she's called him a mentor um, who, who he writes books for Christians. Um, but a lot of the scholarship tends to be, from what I can see, more from more of a secular angle. Interesting. And do many of them 
that you're coming in contact with as you're reading their books, are they interacting with high-level Orthodox Christian scholarship, or are they kind of just not aware of it or, or just ignore it? Is there any interaction going that way? I think they ignore it uh, for a large part. They, What I've seen, I, I did notice that Rachel Held Evans quoted Paul Copan. That's the only evangelical scholar I've ever seen be quoted in at least favorably in a progressive book. Uh, they, I don't see them really interacting with the Michael Krugers and the Peter J. Williams and, and just some of these really orthodox New Testament scholars. Uh, largely, I think they're ignoring it, but there's also this sense that anybody that holds to an orthodox view is kind of um, they, they just roll their eyes. Like it's just, oh, they're just kind of coming up with excuses to, to hold their beliefs that they cherish so much. In fact, really one interesting thing is Pete ends, uh, who I mentioned just a minute ago, recorded a podcast responding to an article I had written on the gospel coalition about similarities between progressive Christians and atheists. And in his podcast, he said that there is no such thing as like, I, I don't, I don't know if I'm going to get the wording right. I'd have to go back and listen again, but something like there, it doesn't exist any kind of really high level evangelical scholarship. Basically it's just a bunch of people who are doing everything they can to hold on to what they believe. And they're kind of kidding themselves basically. So, so there's sort of this view that any quote unquote scholar that really holds to Orthodox Christianity is just kind of not really a real scholar. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's interesting since there's been such a renaissance, especially in Christian philosophy since the 60s. Right. I know. And that's the point I brought up. I recorded a response and I, I said, look, three evangelical philosophers got listed on the best schools list of 50 most influential living philosophers, not even Christian ones, but like 50 most influential philosophers, period. And three evangelical philosophers are on that list. So it's, it's just such a strange notion to me to, to, to see it that way. Wow. Wow. Well, that's interesting. Well, when we come back on the next episode, we want to dive into some maybe particular um, books, responses, and um, maybe just some steps forward for what we can do in our local churches and just as, as Christians as this thing continues to grow. So I uh, hope you guys will come back and take a listen to this next one. Coming, but I know a change gonna come. Oh, yes, it will. It's been too